Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This is going to be a continuation of the series. In fact, it's the last of the series on the power of a gathered people. I hope the effects of this remain with us, though, in the weeks that come ahead of us. Still need for more gathering as we uh, prayed downstairs in, in the prayer room. It is our desire to see more and more of God's people returning, returning to the flock. And uh, <clears throat> I've been visiting church websites, looking at churches' billboards out front, and, uh, and seeing what other pastors, even in our network, have been preaching on lately. And it's amazing how many churches are doing a series of messages that involve some sort of a variation on the theme of the power of a gathered people. It's amazing. Where the word gather is in the title of their series that they're preaching right now. Well, there's a good reason for that. It's pretty obvious. Churches, businesses, institutions, they're all regathering across the landscape. And that's good. And it's thoroughly biblical. So in the last set of messages you've heard over the last number of weeks, we looked at some common metaphors for the church that we find in the scriptures. The body of Christ is a metaphor. Uh, Tells us how a gathered people fit together, how they function, and even though they may be different from one another, and how we depend upon the grace of God in one another as the body here on this earth. And how much each one of us play a role, and yet each one of us has a functioning gift of the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ. You've probably heard uh, Pastor Jack with this um, before, and I think it's very interesting. You know, in 1970, 1980, 81, 81, they christened a new ship in the Navy. It was a submarine. They were entitled it the USS Corpus Christi. And um, Catholic Bishops Association protested the naming of a warship as Corpus Christi because, in fact, that's a nuclear sub and it's used in warfare. And they didn't want to see the body of Christ, which is the Latin term Corpus Christi. Uh, They didn't want to see the body of Christ used as a name given to a warship. So believe it or not, they renamed it the USS City of Corpus Christi because it's named after the city. So they renamed it. But the amazing thing is some of the most damaging warfare that happens in the body of Christ we do to one another. It's pretty profound, isn't it, when you think about it? And I think there's actually a a satanic effect of that whole thing. We'll talk about that a little bit. But another metaphor uh, that we use here is the bride of Christ. It shows that we're a gathered people who harbor all of us together, a lover's passion for God and for the worship of our God. We share that in common. And then there is the, the army of God. That's another metaphor describing Uh, described very well in the book of Ephesians where Paul's encouraging us to put on the full armor as we do battle against the powers of darkness and using that armor both offensively as well as defensively. So that's the metaphor there. But the, the theme for this morning's message is all about the protection afforded to us in far, insofar as we are a gathered people. And what do I mean by protection? Well, let me just give a little bit of background on this. In the 43 years that Lisa and I have been married, 
Um, and in all those years, we were in some capacity doing some level of ministry. If it was not just leading a group in a church or if I was in actual leadership in those different churches, we've been involved. In fact, when we first got married, the first thing we sought to do was find a church. We were not comfortable at all being without a gathered people to be with every week. So we had recommendations given to friends. We went to one church. They're right in the middle of a church split. We said, this doesn't feel like the right church for us now. We went to another church where the pastor and the team came and visited us the next day to say, well, we just finished a series on why the charismatic gifts are not for today. And I said, I don't think that's for us either. I mean, it was just like that pretty much, you know? Uh, and they were happy to tell us that too. And, and yet in, in my 48 years as a follower of Jesus Christ, I would have to say this, it would have been impossible for me to survive this Christian life without the gathered people of God. Now for me, it came um, in a Bible study. As I told you that before, that's where I got saved in somebody's living room, surrounded by a gathered people, a small group, but also in a campus fellowship when I went away to college, I sought out other people of God to be gathered with. And then when Lisa and I got married, the first thing we did was to find a church. And so that has always been um, part of our ethos. That is, we look for protection in that gathered people. So the theme of protection, protection by God, as well as the way that God uses us to protect one another. And in order to talk about that, I want to focus on the most primal, the most common metaphor throughout all of the Bible, both Old Testament and the New Testament, that describes a gathered people and how God protects them. The metaphor is so common that I don't think we even bother to think about it very often. And what I'm talking about is the church, God's people, as a gathered flock, a gathered flock of sheep. We are the flock of God. We are his sheep, and he is our shepherd. So um, from my title slide there, you see that the title of the message today is The Fact of the Flock, and we're going to take that out of John chapter 10. So flocking together isn't just a good idea. It's God's idea, and it's normative picture for church. So I want to look at one of the most popular scriptures in the New Testament, that passage out of John 10. Explore the heart of God to protect us as we gather as his flock. We are his sheep. So we can all turn to the Gospel of John, beginning chapter 10, and I'm going to go to begin right around verse 14. I'm going to do a little bit of running commentary. This is Jesus speaking now to his disciples, the audience of which, mind you, when he's reading this, is all Jews. Do you understand that? That's the context he's saying this. So he's going to say some other things here that are... So there's other listening ears going on here, and Jesus is very aware of that. But they all know the Psalms. These listeners all understand the Psalms. And he also makes a reference to some things maybe you could find in some of the books of the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, in other words, we know all those books called the Minor Prophets. All those books, too, there's a lot of references there where God refers to himself as a shepherd. He refers to his people as a flock. So the priests in those regional shrines, they understood the people who came there to worship to be their flock. The rabbis in the synagogues, they understood that their people to be their flocks. As a matter of fact, the word synagogue 
means a gathering of God's people, a gathering of people. Ezekiel 34, God describes himself as a shepherd. So this flocking notion is the culturally entrenched mindset from which the disciples hear Jesus speaking today. It's also why, and we'll find out this, some of the Jews get angry. They accuse Jesus of being demonized. And so we're going to begin then at verse 14, John chapter 10. And I'll interject some comments. I am the good shepherd. And the Greek word there is for good is called kalos. Kalos doesn't necessarily mean morally good. It rather means a model shepherd, a true shepherd, a perfect shepherd. This really expands the meaning of this metaphor. I am the good shepherd. Moreover, this is what good shepherds should look like. So Jesus continues, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So you see there's an authentic connection between this model shepherd and his sheep based on a, the model of the shepherd's relationship that he even has with Father God. More than that, the protection of the sheep is worth the very life of the shepherd. And then he says this in verse 16. This is where the controversy comes in. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And the word fold here. Um, now, do we have any shepherds here in the room by chance? What I mean is somebody who knows how to care for sheep. I always look out for somebody like that in the congregation. No. So we're kind of devoid of a natural understanding of what Jesus is talking about. So this fold, the sheep fold, means a sheep pen. It's the place where you keep the sheep. And there's other pens with other sheep together that will make up the universal flock of God. You see what he's talking about here. And going on, verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Verse 19. There was again a division amongst the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? And there's a number of reasons why they would have said this. <clears throat> For one... How can a shepherd lay down his life for his sheep when he's dead? How can he do that? So it was illogical. Maybe that was their upsetness. Or this, they don't understand the concept of resurrection. They don't know what's coming. In fact, nobody listening to this story fully comprehends Jesus' meaning of him laying down his life and taking it up again. They don't get it, okay? But he's making allusions to that. And thirdly, it's probably the identification of other sheep who belong, that really gets under their skin. You see, the Jews were very distinct in their faith and believed that they had the in with God that nobody else had. And so the thought of goyim, that is Gentiles, being part of the fold was so foreign in their thinking. But that's without a doubt what a lot of commentaries 
write about this saying the other folds he's talking about are the Gentile folds, which is completely out of the mindset of the Jewish leaders of the day. Verse 21. So others said, well, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Making reference there to the miraculous works of Christ. So the, the image of Jesus as a good shepherd is entrenched in Christian art and not always good art, but we see it decorating stained glass windows, walls of churches all throughout century after century. We see this image. The good shepherd image was in the catacombs in Rome. It's also in the old sanctuary at the McCunji campus. If you ever go to the old sanctuary, they have a painting on the wall by an art teacher from Kutztown University that painted the good shepherd. The familiarity that we have uh, is often makes, causes us to take for granted this concept of a flock and a shepherd. And the fact that the word for shepherd here in the Greek, this is really important. The word in Greek for shepherd is the same exact word that also in the New Testament is the word behind pastor. So every time you see the word pastor in the New Testament, you can insert the word shepherd. In fact, in modern translation, when it talks about the fivefold ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors, some modern translations put the word shepherds in there. And that's proper to do that because it's the same Greek word under that. But instead, we use a word to distinguish the guy who runs the church is what people think, all right? When the police come up here and there's a big scuffle going out inside of New Covenant, the first thing they said is, I want to talk to the pastor. You know what I mean? The guy in charge. That's what the police think of a pastor is. But the word pastor comes from the Latin term, which means to pasture, to feed, to care. So the translators didn't know what exactly to do with it. So they tried to distinguish between the office of pastor and the shepherd and the function. I'm sorry that they are separated by that translator because I really think we need to unify them as the same thing in our minds. Let me read a quote for you guys. The images of Jesus at the gate and the good shepherd are intensely relational and they have no meaning without the presence of sheep. The identity of the community is determined by the shepherd's relationship to the community and in turn, their relationship to Jesus and to one another. That's by Gail O'Day, who is a theologian. She wrote that. So my first point is this one. The individual sheep does not a shepherd make. A flock defines a shepherd. So I've heard stories of shepherds all around the world some of them I've actually observed for myself. And if you go up Route 100, up a good ways up there, there's actually a sheepfold up there. There's a shepherd who runs a sheep farm up there. And I've seen shepherding in England. And when I made a trip to Ireland, we had a chance to learn some things about shepherding, watching, and do you ever watch the shepherding exhibits here in the city of Bethlehem at Celtic Classic? It shows you how they shepherd the sheep using sheepdogs. It's fascinating. But I've never heard of a shepherd who shepherds just one sheep. They all have a flock of sheep. It's multiples. So here's the takeaway that should be obvious to us as Christians, but yet it seems to be a mystery to so many people. 
By definition, a believer who refuses to flock with other believers is a believer who refuses a shepherd. And the protection of that shepherd and that with the protection that his flock affords to them. And across the West, not so much in the developing world, but in the West, there exists a huge multitude of sheep who refuse to flock and therefore refuse to be pastored. It's that independent mindset that hits so many of us in North America. That isn't normative Christianity. It saddens the heart of the good shepherd. Let me read these quotes. Matthew and Mark both record Jesus as saying this, this passage. When he saw the crowds, he, Jesus, had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And of course, the word for harassed here really means they were troubled, they were irritated, they were annoyed. And then the word for helpless there means they were living almost in a stupor, unable to get themselves the help they actually needed. So I have a real compassion for shepherdless, those who do not have a shepherd. And Jesus declares to the people of Jerusalem, he says, you refuse to gather, is what he said. He said, sadly, he wept over Jerusalem because of that. So then the next principle I'd like to talk about is this one. That a flock is a gathered group of sheep under a shepherd's umbrella of protection. The nature of that protection that the shepherd affords the sheep are this. It's nurture, that is the sheep are fed. Health, the sheep get cared for. It's identity. The sheep know to which shepherd they belong. To which flock they belong. Protection. They're being protected from being devoured by predators, by enemies. Both, but biblically in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the greatest danger to the flock is that they'd somehow become scattered. Scattered sheep then become prey. And I've told people this before. When you see the wolf go after a flock of sheep, do you know who the wolf goes after? He doesn't jump into the middle of the flock. He goes over the stragglers outside of the flock all alone. And I use this illustration when people say, I don't need the church, it's me and Jesus. I said, really? Do you know how easily you're picked off by Satan when you're in that state? Versus being gathered together with other sheep. There's protection in that. And so the principle is this. The New Testament application of flock as a gathered community under the protection of the pastoral ministry of the local church, a recognizable flock, protection as we gather together. So I want to take a few minutes to consider five protections afforded by the local church. Look, and I know I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are here. You're listening to this message. You've got the privilege and the benefits and the blessings just because you showed up and you're listening to this message right now. I mean that, you really do. But I'm gonna cover five other, protect, five other protections afforded by the local church that maybe we don't normally think about, but I'm gonna remind you of them today. Conveniently, they're all beginning with the letter D. So the first protection is this. It's a protection from doubt. 
Our enemy's first attack occurs when we begin to question the reliability of the word of God. If a church gathers around the centrality of the word of God, and if they minister that word at all the gatherings of that church, the mere fact that we have that plumb line of truth stabilizes us morally and spiritually. Note, it's not enough to merely have a Bible, okay? But the Bible has to be preached. It has to be ministered to the people. So whether that's in a Bible study or whether that's coming to church like this or some other gathering where the word is preached to you is so very important. Let me an example of this. During the mid-90s, uh, Pastor Jack was asked to minister to a church uh, on the other side of the state. And at that meeting, a prophetic word was spoken. And the essence of the prophetic word was something like this. We're in the midst of a move of the Holy Spirit. Why do we need to teach the word? We have the Spirit of God amongst us moving. And that's inspirational word. It is. It's very inspiring to think about the Spirit's doing the work. He's moving amongst us. We don't have to preach the word. We can stay and just have the power of the Holy Spirit prayed over us instead of preaching the word every single week. What they did essentially was they moved the scriptures out of its central role in our lives and just had an experiencing of the Holy Spirit to be central to our lives in God. Well, during the renewal, when we had the, the word come, when they had people coming to New Covenant visiting us, we did a Saturday evening service to experience the things of the Holy Spirit. But we tethered it to the word of God. The word was preached every single Saturday night at those services because we want to make sure we had the scriptures as our guide to hold us, to ground us. Now, sadly and predictably, that church that Pastor Jack was speaking at doesn't exist anymore because they've moved away from the centrality of the word of God to something else. So that flock, I don't know what ever, ever happened to them in their thinking, but they moved away from an understanding of the word of God. They doubted the power of the word. They doubted the centrality of the word. Let me get another example. Uh, <clears throat> Lisa and I used to be youth directors. I know that's hard to believe, but we used to be youth directors. And every once in a while, we'd have one of our young people go away to college. And sometimes, even at Christian schools, I don't know what, what happens, but somehow they get all turned around and then they come back and they begin to question all sorts of things. They were challenged with alternative religious theories, all these things, mostly theories about the scriptures. And the one main thing where somebody asks us is, how do you know that the way you interpret the scriptures is the right way to interpret the scriptures? In other words, they're trying to say, that's only your personal interpretation, right? It's not necessarily the right interpretation. But listen to this. If the Bible could mean anything, then the Bible means nothing. So it has to have something that tethers it, that makes it central, that makes it sound. And that happens within the context of a gathered people where you're not just sitting and privately interpreting the word of God. You can get up in a Bible study, hey guys, I just read the scripture. I think this means this. Well, in that gathered group, somebody's gonna say, Nice try, but I don't think that's what the Bible's saying, okay? We need that. We need that cross-check 
okay? We all need that cross-check. And some of you know that too. There are some people here who are always cross-checking me. So after I preach a message, they're very happy to come up and to correct me after the service. God's little helpers, I call them. Well, I'm not going to go far from the truth, obviously, if I got people like that constantly questioning me and making sure I'm right on spot. Anyway, next protection that we get from the word of God is this. Protection from deception. We maintain intimate relationships with one another. We align ourselves under the biblical authority, though, that God has placed over us, that protection of the shepherd's protection over us that helps us, that we can't gain any other way. And uh, there have been pastors, some mighty people who I looked up to, who lacked this ability for other people to speak into their, their lives. There was one individual who actually um, also started a, um, a chain of, um, I guess you would call them physical therapy places, essentially massage parlors. And in fact, they themselves became a customer of some of his own massage parlors. And no one was in his life or over him to speak into his life and to say, do you think this is not such a good idea? I don't think this looks right. In fact, I think this is wrong. You need someone in your life who can lean into you and say, brother, sister, this is not right. That's powerful protection. When you are flocked together so much so that somebody can speak into your life and it's really good. It's a good and healthy thing. Somebody recently came to me and he says, listen, I need to be under a pastor. And I need to meet with you, Bob, because you're my pastor. And I want you to be able to speak into my life. We need to meet regularly. And I said, this is a God thing. It's good. It's healthy. It's biblical to do that, to make sure we're staying on the mark. We're not being deceived. But other times you find out about this. Celebrity pastors, this is unfortunate. They have corporate boards they call them, board of directors, but they have no one who comes alongside them and knows everything about them. And they are vulnerable. Do you see what I mean? It's that kind of pastoring that even pastors need to have, especially celebrity pastors. So you need to ask this, am I in the company of peers who love me, will protect me from myself, as well as protect me from the enemy. You see, our capacity for self-deception is both sobering and alarming. The potential for damage to the body of Christ is enormous when we are vulnerable in that regard. Okay, next protection. The protection from disorientation. This goes to the issue of my identity, who I am in Christ, who I am in the body of Christ. Each week, I gather with the body of Christ. I worship in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when I do so with the gathered people of God, I am reoriented. God keeps me straightly oriented. You are my, I'm one of your sheep. You are my shepherd God, and I worship you. And it's in that community of faith that I get reoriented all over again. 
He repositions me in the kingdom so that I know who I am in Christ and to whom I belong. We get this through the songs we sing, through the prayers we pray, and hopefully at times like this when the word is preached. I get this concept. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, Jesus said. And when I traveled on business, you know, I always would try to seek out a place of worship, sometimes not easy to come about. I uh, spent a good number of weeks in Aceh Uttara, uh, Indonesia, in an area of the country which is 99% Muslim. Well, how am I going to find a place to worship here, right? Sure enough, I found there is a, um, a, mixed, a mixed language church. They, sang, they did English and they did Indonesian in those services. They sang all the hymns that I knew. I just didn't know the words. So I just hum along, you know what I mean? But the most refreshing thing is afterwards, the fellowship that happened there between us Anglos and, and the Indonesian people was amazing. The most profound moment when I knew I'm with the body of Christ was this one lady begins to laugh out loud. She sounded just like Tommy Cox. Do you guys know Tommy Cox over at McCungie? She has this most distinct laugh. And there I am on the other side of the world and this lady laughs just like Tommy Cox. I says, I'm home. I'm here with God's people. This is great. And the other thing about this and disorientation, we learn this, there's a shepherding practice in Ireland, which is they identify the sheep of two different pastures, and they sometimes use this like spray paint, like fluorescent colored paint. And uh, they use fluorescent red, fluorescent green, so that they know, that, so they all pasture together, but then they know whose sheep is whom by the coloring on them. But they also did it for another reason I found out. Especially on the male sheep, they spray them green on their underside. And we're saying, like, why do they spray them on the underside? They said, well, they go out in the pasture at night, and then in the morning, you know with whom he has been. Because she has green on her now. And Pastor Jack was saying, maybe we should do that with people at church, too. <laughs> so we know... <laughs> we know to whom we belong and with whom we've been, okay? <laughs> but that's a, that's a place of being oriented of what flock you belong to, okay? You have to have an identity with the flock of God. And even if it crosses nationalities and languages to identify and say, I'm here amongst the people who don't know Jesus anywhere, but I found this little niche in this international church and I got oriented again on those business trips. Protection from this one. Protection from division. Now listen, sin happens as a consequence of being isolated. That's why I always tell people who isolate themselves, you are vulnerable to great sin when you're in that state. Genesis chapter 3, Adam abandons his role in Eve's life as her husband. And the serpent was able to suggest that God had not actually spoken. God's word is challenged. Adam and Eve experienced the first church split instigated by Satan. See the strategy right there from the very beginning. They, in effect, became divided because the curse says this, I will put enmity between you, Adam, and the woman is what the curse that God spoke out says. 
So sin produces further isolation from one another and ultimately from God himself. John 17, when Jesus does his high priestly prayer, he prays this, that they may all be one, that they may become perfectly one. That's Jesus' prayer for us. So why is unity so very important to God? You see, we have to fight for unity. Even when our instinct is, oh, I've been hurt, and I don't want to have to fellowship with her anymore, I'm going to go find another church. That's an instinct we sometimes have. And I'm telling you, let the prayer of Jesus get us to see this is a division that's being brought on by the enemy himself. He, Satan wants to divide us. So what we need to do in our hearts is resist the temptation to be divided. No, I'm going to stay in there. I'm going to hang in there as difficult as things seem to be right now. I'm going to hang in there because he prayed that we would be one. The next protection is this one, protection from diversion. And what I mean by that is when you're lured away from what God has actually called us to do, those callings are actively lived out within the anointing of the Holy Spirit in a place of community. All of our callings is all within a community or flocking of God's people. So when Paul encourages the giftedness of the church in 1 Corinthians 12, he notes each gift is for the common good. It's for the good of all of the body of Christ. And even mission, that is our reaching out with the gospel, is an expression or an outgrowth of our community. And the author of Hebrews, we've been reading this before, he instructs them that when they gather, they should gather for a very good reason. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The truth is, we know about this, we're very much aware of this, there is a proliferation of what I would call shadow missions within the church. I could do a whole teaching on this alone. That is, we suddenly lose focus of our primary mission. Do you know we are placed here in this building, in this city, right now in 2021, to reach the community around us here, that God has placed us here. It's our mission. They are our mission. And it's so easy to lose sight of that and to become focused on one another and to forget about the mission. Our mission is to know Jesus and to make him known. And yet, over time, people develop a shadow mission. They drift away from their mission so that they're so far of what, out of what they originally ventured to do that sometimes you have to sit back and say, wait a minute, how did we get so far off? What has happened to us? It's because you've been diverted. Whereas flocking together, staying flocked with others, protects us from being diverted away from that mission. Being under teaching like this keeps us all focused on our mission. We encourage one another, stay focused on the mission, but we bring in all sorts of other shadow missions, personal ambitions, all these other things come in then with it. Okay, so let me close. So as members of the flock of God, 
We share in one essential relationship as the basis for our gatherings as God's people. That is, we all have become sheep of Jesus, the good shepherd. That's what we all share in common. Go to the person next to you and say, (laughs) that's what binds us together. Okay, that's one of the things that joins us together. We're all part of the sheepfold here. And, you know, I know everything about being part of sheepfolds, of people, that is. Sheep bite. Did you know that? I can show you the scars. And they smell. They do. But when you've been around sheep for a long time, you get soft hands. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture, it says in Psalm 100. So if you sense that today you are shepherdless, or as Jesus says, do you feel harassed, helpless? Perhaps you feel like a sheep without a shepherd. I have great news. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. He loves you that much. So if you would desire or sense in your heart a desire to become one of Jesus' sheep, then I'd like you all to bow your heads right now. Everyone just bow your heads. And I'll invite you to pray this prayer in your heart. I'm going to read it out. But if you, I want you to take these words to heart. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I have done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from anything that I know is wrong. I do want to be one of the sheep in your flock. Thank you that you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. I now receive that gift. Please, Come into my life by your Holy Spirit. Be my good shepherd forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.